Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. Today, I'm really excited to um, have two special guests with us. Uh, these are two co-chairs of the Canadian Pain Task Force. So in June of 2019, the Canadian Pain Task Force released the first of three reports to the Canadian public, and we will provide a link to that uh, task force because it is incredibly uh, useful to go through that, and it's laid out in a way that is easy to pull information out of. So this report was commissioned to assist the Government of Canada to better understand and address the needs of Canadians living with pain. So this is a very comprehensive, as I said, well-designed report that provides a snapshot Uh, regarding the landscape of pain services, uh, what's happening with respect to research, education, and training, as well as the gaps that are happening in services throughout Canada. So it really uh, is very inclusive. It involves multiple professionals, but also more importantly, it involves individuals with lived experiences of pain. So they provide some very important input. um, So that uh, makes the report very unique. So I would highly recommend that uh, if you have any interest and care deeply about this uh, subject, to read the report and do whatever you can to get engaged in this process. I know that the task force is looking for input. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to get some of that information from our our guest speakers as we go along here. So the two special guests that we're going to talk to today are Dr. Fiona Campbell and Maria Hudspeth. Uh, I just want to put a little plug in for Maria's uh, podcast, uh, Pain Waves out of Pain BC. Hopefully she'll talk about that uh, throughout the podcast today. Fiona Campbell is a pediatric anesthetist and professor in the Department of Anesthesia and Pain Medicine at the Hospital for Sick Kids in Toronto. She's the director of the Chronic Pain Team and co-director of the Sick Kids Pain Centre at the Hospital for Sick Kids, where she helps to integrate research, education, quality improvement, and policy initiatives. So as co-chair of the Pediatric Chronic Pain Advisory Network, in partnership with the Ontario Ministry of Health, Dr. Campbell has helped to develop a provincial strategy to enhance access to improve pediatric chronic pain services in Ontario. The other important thing is that Dr. Campbell is president of the Canadian Pain Society. Uh, She took on this position in May of 2018. Uh, Her year or her term will end in May of 2020. Maria Hudspeth is a inaugural executive director of Pain BC, a collaborative non-government organization working to improve the lives of people in pain. Ms. Hudspeth has held this position since June of 2010, so she has a ton of experience, very engaging individual actually to sit and talk with. With two decades of experience in community development and system changes, Ms. Hudspeth provides strategic leadership focused on education, engagement, knowledge translation, and advocacy in the support of people living with chronic pain. Her responsibilities include developing and implementing strategic and operational plans, designing and evaluating programs, leading fundraising efforts, and developing and sustaining partnerships within the community, as well as with uh, different partners who are involved in providing and delivering care with respect to patients living with pain. Ms. Hudspeth is a co-principal investigator at the Canadian Institute of Health Research, Strategy for Patient-Orientated Research, Chronic Pain Network, and co-lead of the network's patient engagement initiatives. Ms. Hudspeth has had more than two decades of experience working in the public sector to mobilize communities, democratize organizations, and advance progressive agendas through policy change and program development. So I want to welcome Dr. Fiona Camel and Marie Hudspeth 
to our Pain Talk podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So what I want to do is I want to start um, just by asking uh, each of you just a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from and the work that you do. So maybe, uh, Maria, I'll get you to start. Sure. I'm from British Columbia. I was born in a rural community and now uh, live in the Lower Mainland. And I'm the executive director of a provincial organization called Pain BC. And Pain BC does many things, including support for people who live with pain, education for clinicians, fostering research, and doing a lot of work around systems change. So we have a broad mandate. And in addition to my work with Pain BC, I've been involved in a number of national efforts around pain. So I'm one of the co-principal investigators in the CIHR-funded Chronic Pain Research Network. And in March of 2019, I was appointed as the co-chair of the Canadian Pain Task Force. Prior to working in pain, I've worked in lots of other areas. I'm not a clinician, but I have a love for health policy and community-driven solutions to complex problems. So I've worked in lots of fields from addictions and HIV to women's health uh, and now pain. Wow, that's amazing. So Fiona, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself as well. Thank you. I was uh, born in London, UK, but I've been in Toronto for probably half my life. Um, I am a clinician. Uh, I My day job is as a pediatric anesthesiologist and medical director of the chronic pain program at uh, Sick Kids or Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Uh, and uh, that sort of what I do day to day um, on the ground, seeing patients, but I'm also president of the Canadian Pain Society, uh, which is a, a national chapter of the International Association for the Study of Pain, um, which is interprofessional, has clinicians, scientists, um, educators, uh, increasingly people with lived experience, and then professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine, which we have recently renamed at University of Toronto uh, to reflect the importance of the pain mandate. Uh, and I'm absolutely uh, delighted to have been appointed as co-chair of the Canadian Pain Task Force, uh, which uh, I co-chair with Maria, and I'm absolutely delighted to do so. It's just been some fantastic work, and I think we're really good um, collaborators on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're Delighted to be here today. No, absolutely. I'm just so happy that you were able to to do this interview. And and I must say the report itself, we'll get into some of the details, is you guys did a fantastic job. I mean, it's very easy to read. Lots of uh, evidence-based uh, science there, uh, looking at some of the positives, but also some of the gaps and where we need to go. So why was this task force established in the first place? And I and I just want to kind of add a little thing there, too, because I, I've been in healthcare now for about 35 years, and I feel like we've kind of redone this national pain strategy uh, in different ways uh, over the years. So what's different about this one? 
Well, I mean, I completely agree with you, uh, Maureen. There have been several uh, iterations of this. Uh, and this is because um, it, it's very important because chronic pain affects one in five Canadians, including children. Um, and uh, for those Canadians, two-thirds of them, the pain is moderate or severe and has very significant impact on their uh, function. So they have pain-related disability. And it disproportionately affects women, older people, veterans and uh, indigenous uh, populations. And so we've known this for a long time. Um, and so people who are in the pain space have been uh, really pushing for a pain strategy for a long time. I think the reason that um, it this drive has been more successful now is because the opioid uh, crisis, um, which is well, it's very complex, I'm sure we'll uh, get into, um, but the opioid crisis suddenly um, shone a spotlight on the problem of pain as a problem in its own right. So I think we've reached a tipping point uh, that has allowed uh, us to um, uh, really begin to address this as a, a very important public health issue. So uh, I, I think we've reached this tipping point and, and we know that there's inadequate education, very few um, uh, specialist clinics as uh, uh, access to care as a problem. We know that research is underfunded and there's just absolutely no coordination at government level. So um, there are a whole, you know, that's sort of the very high level snapshot. But I, I think the reason um, why the time is right is because we, we've sort of reached a tipping point. Um, and I'll stop there. Thanks. Yeah, I didn't know if you had anything to add there, uh, Maria. The only thing I would say that's different about this is that previous attempts to advance a national strategy were really driven from the outside towards government. So they're, um, you know, it's it's hard for clinicians and people who are living with pain to try and affect these big system changes because most of us don't know how government works or how mm. you get something on the agenda. So those early attempts, I think people felt like, you know, we have to tell government there's a problem and government's going to recognize it and do something, but that didn't happen. It's not to say those attempts were not valuable. They absolutely were because they really did a lot of the, um, they built a network of people who want change. They started mobilizing the voices of people who live with pain. And, you know, we started to get some attention um, at government, but it wasn't enough to get us there. And the difference here is that we've actually been given a mandate from government to drive this change. And I think that's what makes us all feel very hopeful that there's significant buy-in uh, across the federal government. So not just in the health ministry, so not just Health Canada. Um, senior people in government now understand this issue. And already we've seen some initial steps and some initial investment to try and make things better. So that I think that's what's really different about this iteration of uh, this work. It's um, it, it, it's such a huge problem to sort of kind of trying to coordinate everything and bring everybody together around this issue. And uh, I remember I attended the Ottawa summit uh, when we were looking at, I think it was 2016, I actually have lost track of and I remember the voices of individuals there at the meeting with a lived experience of pain who are not being heard. 
I mean, the focus was on the opiate crisis, but there were also other types of um, tragedies that were happening within communities around, you know, prescribing and the fear of, of prescribing that we'll probably get into as we go along. So in the end, what, what is your vision for this task force? What, what do you hope the task force will achieve? Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Fiona. There are so many things, but in a snapshot, uh, what we would really um, like to see is better uh, pain prevention and education so that uh, pain does not become chronic in the first place. Mm. We would like better access to care uh, regard with taking a health equity lens. So this isn't just in urban settings coming into specialist pain clinics, but that all uh, primary health providers, whether they be uh, physicians, pediatricians, nurse practitioners, have the knowledge and the skills to be able to address and treat pain properly. Um, we need proper and substantial uh, input into uh, research and its infrastructure. And I think the thing that's uh, really critical um, is to have national uh, coordination mm -hmm. um, of uh, strategy uh, so that and this happens in a systemic and integrated way uh, across um, this incredible country. But basically, I would like for every Canadian um, to have access to the care that they need so that people do not have to suffer. Yeah, and it's, it is, it's interesting. I mean, uh, uh, pain is such a universal experience. There's none of us that will not experience it, and it infiltrates every aspect of our lives, but we have very little training, very little recognition that this is this is something that requires a very unique approach. It's 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 not something that just kind of happens. We need to be able to have that coordination and have all of us kind of working together in the spectrum, just like we do with heart disease, just like we do with stroke. You know, the prevention, you know, intervention and maintenance, all these kinds of of different steps. Um, so, uh, Maria, I wonder, could you talk a little bit about what you see as your vision as well and what you're hoping to uh, to um, see happen with this task report? Well, I think, you know, very much uh, echo Fiona's comments. And the only thing I would add is just that, you know, there are not a lot of countries that have developed national pain strategies. You know, we look to Australia often because they were um, out of the gate and really have pioneered in this area. But when we look at the Australian strategy, it's quite narrowly focused on the health system. And we know that people need pain care. We know that research is um, so tremendously important, but we know that pain is a biopsychosocial problem and it affects all aspects of people's lives, as we've said, Maureen. Yeah. So I think one of the potentials with this task force is to engage a broader range uh, across the federal government. In the federal government, they are responsible for things like disability pensions, and they're responsible for uh, providing certain services to uh, Indigenous peoples across Canada, uh, for veterans, you know, for corrections. They have roles that 
go beyond just the, the main publicly funded health system to really drive change in all kinds of areas that matter to people who live with pain. So even thinking about employment and workforce accommodations, thinking about capturing uh, data on pain in the census, it's very, very broad. And one of the things that I know Fiona and I have been really heartened by is that the federal government is seeing the breadth of that potential and really um, using the task force as an opportunity to engage a whole bunch of different departments and ministries to look at what, where does pain fit in their mandate? So I think that's going to be a truly groundbreaking and innovative opportunity that this task force is going to uh, bring about. Do you, do you see the task force as providing some guidance? And I'm one particular area that I'm thinking about that often can contribute sometimes to suffering is when I think about workman's compensation, you know, work hardening programs or, you know, third party disability, not so much the revenue or Health Canada's disability, but all of these different insurance. Is there going to be room to engage with those groups as well? Absolutely. And we have already begun um, that process. So we've had preliminary meetings with the Canadian Health and Life Insurance Association, and we'll be continuing to engage them uh, going forward. So I think that really is the innovative potential here is to um, go beyond just the Health Canada and the public health or publicly funded system to engage those other players, many of whom have a really significant impact on the lives of people who live with pain in Canada. Absolutely. And they can actually, I find sometimes, contribute to um, to the um, the illness itself in the sense that the the patient is not being validated, you know, with the, with what they're experiencing. They're putting them in these nice little standardized programs, and they have to fit kind of that model and you know get themselves get them back to work, but not really understanding the disease itself. You know, it's 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 really interesting. So the other thing that hey, I think, can I, sure, absolutely. Oh, sorry, Maureen, yeah, I yeah. just wanted to uh, circle back to a really important point that you made uh, about um, the fact that we all have pain. Uh, And um, this, uh, I think this is a really critical point. So we all have pain to protect our bodies from harm. And um, the treatment of that is to protect uh, the area so that it heals and gets better. Uh, Chronic pain um, is not protective, even though it might feel indistinguishable from acute pain. And in fact, uh, chronic pain is a disease in its, can be a disease in its own right, a change in pain pathways and such. Uh, And so um, even healthcare providers don't really understand this distinction. And this is why sometimes it's not taken seriously because um, we all have acute pain. So there's a sense of, you know, suck it up. Um, Things will get better. uh, People are malingerers uh, and so on. So um, there's a lot of stigma associated with chronic pain, which is compounded by the fact that it's invisible. And so I think these are really important um, contributory factors to the understanding of chronic pain uh, and why it's such a complex issue that isn't always given the attention that it deserves. 
Um, the World Health Organization uh, has just changed its classification system uh, so that to recognize chronic pain as a disease of the nervous system in its own right, and this should help reduce stigma and allow for better data tracking and collection so we can learn more about this disease. Uh, sorry to have interjected with that. Fiona, that's so important what you're saying. And actually, I uh, so I'm involved in our pain self-management program here in our community. And I just did the lecture on uh, pain mechanism. And uh, so what we talked about in the group is the fact that the World Health Organization has legitimized this as a real disease. Yes. And, and we cannot underestimate how important that is and how validating that is for people who are living with persistent pain. And uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for putting that in there. I didn't know if you wanted to comment on that at all, either, Maria. No, I just okay. I, I think many of us are celebrating uh, that fact because the legitimization of pain and moving it from being this orphan condition only seen as a symptom, I think is going to have far-reaching implications. That said, I think we're still in this for the long game. You know, this yeah. is those that new ICD-11 coding from the World Health Organization coming into effect in 2022, but it's going to be, I think, a number of years before we really see all of the impacts of that integrated into the things we're talking about, our provincial fees and coding systems, uh, the way that insurers operate and view this, I think. But it is a really significant tipping point. I, I can see it being very valuable, even around a research perspective as well, because you do see there's such variability in populations. I mean, patients who are living with persistent pain all have significant suffering associated with this, but you'll see some differences within populations. And I think it's going to help us understand and be able to direct care more effectively to those differences uh, in, in those populations. I think it's, I, I was really excited when I saw that and it blew my mind that it took this long to see that happen. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. So um, Maria, I just wanted to ask you too, because the other thing that I think was so powerful when I read the task force document, and, and for listeners, we will put some links up to the, the task force, but it's very easy to read. You can go in, there's, a, uh, I think, six sections that are there and an area that might interest you. I'm very interested in the education piece. And so you could go right in there and just kind of read. And it was very easy to kind of go through. So kudos to you guys and uh, the layout in the in the task force uh, document. It's very, very effective to and easy to, to access. But I wanted to ask you, Marie, um, what I thought was so powerful when I was reading this was the fact that you infiltrate, there's so much about lived experience in this in this task force report. I wonder if you could comment on that. People sometimes say, you know, what's the what's the importance of uh, including people with lived experience? And fundamentally, you know, people with lived experience are the experts in their own lives and have incredible contributions to make to uh, say what their priorities are to help clinicians understand their experience, you know, and many of us do things that we think are the right things. And sometimes people who live with pain might say to us, you know, that doesn't actually feel good, or that feels stigmatizing or invalidating. And um, it's just been a wonderful opportunity to really center the experience of um, people who live with pain, 
and in the phase of the task force mandate that we're currently in, which is really about engagement, um, there's going to be even more opportunity for uh, people who live with pain from all across the country to make their voices heard. So we are um, embarking on an online consultation where, you know, there's the tick boxes for people to kind of uh, check things off, but there'll also be a lot of open fields for people to tell their stories. Um, and there have been regional workshops happening ar across the country and one uh, coming to uh, Halifax at the end of uh, January where there will also be people with lived experience sharing their stories and talking about the things that have worked in their communities, the barriers that they're facing, and really what the task force needs to do to uh, move the needle on this issue. So, you know, we, we think a lot of experts as being researchers, scientists, doctors, and I think we really need to move in the direction where people with lived experience are truly recognized as experts themselves. And I'm hoping that we're doing that uh, through the work of the task force. When I, um, I do uh, a fair bit of, um, of teaching we, uh, in our community, and I have a, a six-step approach that I often talk to uh, with my colleagues. And the first step is always to listen to the patient's pain story. And the second step is always to acknowledge their suffering. And then the third part is to examine them carefully, because often patients who have a lived experience of pain often don't get listened to and don't get examined because, you know, healthcare providers often think, okay, well, here we go, pain again, sort of thing. But you cannot underestimate the importance of their life, their their experience, and also listening and making sure that there's nothing new going on in that tissue. So I just think it's such an important thing that it's hard to get that message out there. Uh, but we need to to do whatever we can to get that message out there. So um, yeah, I agree, Maureen. One other thing that I think is so important is, you know, often when we're engaging with people with lived experience, you know, we're expecting to hear their story of living with pain and not always recognizing the fullness of the contribution that people can be making. And it's been uh, really. Uh, an interesting learning for me in my pain BC role because the organization, it's part of the DNA that our direction is set by people who live with pain. Yeah. So people with pain are on our board. We have many people who live with pain among our staff, our volunteers, people that are involved in evaluating our programs. You know, everything we do from designing programs to running them to evaluating them to the governance of the organization has people with pain at the center. And it's amazing because, I mean, many people living with pain, they're also teachers, they're yeah. nurses, they're physicians. They're all of us. They're, yeah. pol they're yeah. policy makers, you know, and yeah. really giving an opportunity for people to contribute with their whole selves. And that's another piece that we are trying to do with the task force is create those opportunities because lots of people who live with pain have really great ideas about yeah. the research agenda, about the policy agenda. Um, so not just telling their stories. Yeah, exactly. Um, Fiona, I was just going to just going to read a quote from the um, the task force and I'm just going to get you to comment on 
because uh, it, it is a, a powerful statement as well. And it says, you know, and I think it's it's more in the summary. I'm trying to remember where I picked it up. But the, ref- the report reflects the current state of pain care education and research in Canada. It tells us that pain is stigmatized and still invalidated condition. Health prof- care professionals still lack the knowledge and skills to treat pain. Specialized pain services are largely not accessible and research findings are not always being used to improve care. So how can a national policy address those huge gaps when you read that one statement, in particular those of us who work in rural and remote communities? And actually, Fiona, I might, or Maria, I might also get you, uh, after Fiona, sort of comments on that, just to talk a little bit about the work that you've done in some of the remote communities as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a really huge statement and a, and a huge question, so I'm not going to be able okay. to unpack all of that, but I'll just begin with speaking about uh, access to care uh, at the grassroots level. If providers do not have the knowledge and skills to be able to assess uh, and treat pain so they understand pain mechanisms, treatment options that are out there, the evidence for their uh, support, um, that they that they uh, understand pain within this biopsychosocial framework, which incidentally is the way we should really be um, looking at uh, all chronic disease, understanding mm. all chronic yeah. diseases. So if those skills and um, aren't present in people who are the first port of call often, um, certainly the professional port, port of call for patients who are seeking help, uh, then uh, it feels a little hopeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to me, uh, one of the key um, things that we need to do is to drive the education agenda yeah. of pre-licensure students so that you get people from the get-go to have better understanding uh, of this within the biopsychosocial framework, how to assess patients who are living with pain, how to treat them, what the options are, and so on, so that when they get out into practice, they have the knowledge and skills to do so. That's in the kind of undergraduate or uh, at least pre-licensure level, uh, and that this also is an interprofessional responsibility. It's not just about primary care because um, the first port of call might also be to a a physiotherapist or to an occupational therapist or to a psychologist or other mental health provider. Uh, And so um, everyone from all of these uh, different professions and disciplines uh, need this understanding so that they can be armed with the tools to be able to uh, help um, patients when, uh, help people when they come and seek their services. So I think uh, education at the grassroots level uh, of the professionals is absolutely critical. And I think that that is something um, where national coordination is key so that we reduce variability in training across our institutions across Canada. Um, If you don't reduce variability, uh, then you have uh, inequity um, and uh, we really need to kind of standardize the way we do things. Um, So I think that's one big thing. And then, of course, you have the whole matter of people who are already in practice 
and uh, arming those people with uh, continual uh, professional development so that they can obtain the knowledge skills as well. Uh, and I think that there are quite a lot of online programs um, that are out there now for pain uh, management. There are some, there are standards, there are opioid prescribing modules and so on. So there are tools as well for people already in practice. So it's not going to be a single solution, um, but I think the education piece is massive because if we have better access to care in the first place, we might prevent acute pain from becoming chronic. Um, but we also need specialist training for people who are going to provide interprofessional um, education for um, uh, interprofessional uh, management for patients who need really specialist care. Mm, There is one model that I think is helpful in a country such as Canada, which has vast swathes of remote and rural communities. And that is something called Project ECHO, which is a way of spreading knowledge to healthcare providers uh, and ultimately patients, I would argue, uh, to move knowledge uh, from um, centralized specialist hubs out into communities to arm people in those communities with the uh, tools to be able to treat people properly. And this takes Project ECHO is um, something that people can learn about. We could put up, you can put up the link on your website. There are lots of um, echoes uh, across Canada now for chronic pain. But basically, they take the format of a specialized service, uh, serves as a hub, and people can just sign in through video conferencing technology um, to present case rounds so that they can become experts, so they can treat patients in the communities in which they reside. So the sort of um, mantra, if you like, is moving knowledge not patients yeah. for specialized care. I'm going to stop there. There's so much That's in your okay. question. I know. I and Maria will have plenty. Maria will have plenty to add. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, go ahead, Maria, because I, I think it's important to to share the kinds of things and the the models that you have developed and have been involved in as well. I think it's just incredible. Well, and I think just to the question, you know, the part of your question around how can a national policy make a difference in addressing gaps sort of on the ground. You know, the federal government has long been involved in establishing expectations for the provinces, not around how they do things, but about what they're meant to be providing and sort of some common, uh, I don't mean standards in a legal sense, but um, you know, that there have been health accords, there have been other big top-down things that have said to the provinces, you all have to have cardiac services or you all have to have um, certain standard of mental health programs. And I think that's the kind of thing that a national strategy for pain could do mm. is provide some level of um, common expectation across the country because you see huge variation. Viona was talking about the variation in training. We also have huge variation in what different provinces are providing. Ontario has been very successful in building out their um, clinical services. You know, Fiona was so involved in that effort, but they secured $20 million in protected annualized funding to really dramatically increase their access to interdisciplinary uh, pain services. Some other provinces um, have done other things, but I think Ontario is a great example of, of 
actually getting care on the ground. Um, so I think the task force can absolutely have a role in setting some common uh, standards for services across the country uh, in the area of education, but also care uh, as well. So in terms of the things that we've done here in BC that might be of interest to uh, other folks, you know, we've been involved in developing a number of uh, different education programs, and all of those have really started in a very grassroots way where uh, people in a particular community and often a rural or remote community will say, you know, we need help. We don't have um, a big uh, multidisciplinary pain center. We don't, in many communities, they don't have civic infrastructure like a pool, a community center, the kinds of things that people living in urban areas take for granted in terms of uh, rehabilitation and those kinds of things. So we've developed a number of different programs that really started in that way. One of them is a gentle movement and relaxation program that has now been turned into an online curriculum where we train movement professionals. So those might be physiotherapists, they might be kinesiologists, or even people like yoga therapists uh, that work in local communities. And our online program trains them in to actually develop and run this low barrier um, group movement and relaxation program that's specific for people who have chronic pain. So it integrates the neuroscience education um, and all of those other self-management pieces. We've also developed a program called Making Sense of Pain, which is a self-management, a group self-management program. It's eight weeks long, but it's specifically targeted to people who experience marginalization in addition to their experience of pain. So these are folks who are living with substance use disorder, mm. they're living in poverty, they're struggling with mental health issues. And we piloted this program in the downtown east side of Vancouver. So, you know, a population with huge degree of complexity, mm. um, homelessness, drug use, crime, and the initial pilot was really successful. We went on to develop an indigenous version of this program that is co-led by an elder and a clinician in a First Nations community. And we've just finished the pilot of that program. And now we've received some additional funding from a charitable foundation to spread both these programs across the province in rural and remote communities over the next three years. So we have huge demand for this yeah. program because every community is struggling yeah. to work with their most marginalized uh, residents who have pain. And this program really makes the ideas of self-management very accessible wow. and helps people understand the relationship between their experience of trauma, their experience of pain, and the other struggles that they have uh, in their lives. So um, those are two of our programs. We have several more, but all of them really have been developed with people with lived experience and they're delivered by frontline clinicians and often co-teaching with a peer um, in local communities. Yeah. And, I, and actually, we, what we can do is put some links to those programs because I think they're so important. The other population that I often see unrecognized is the military. And we have a, a very strong military 
organization here in, in Halifax with bases. And you do see significant issues around pain in very young men and women in the military as well. So a program that's very specific to their needs as well, I think, would, would be something that could be helpful. So there is a new National Center of Excellence uh, focused on veterans. I don't know if you're aware of that, but it was just funded in 2019 as sort of it was announced and it's just getting going now. But that new uh, national network is going to be developing specialized programs for veterans all across the country. It's based at McMaster University. And I think an exciting new development, uh, specifically for people in the military. Yeah, absolutely. So that's great news, actually. I wasn't aware of that. So so that's wonderful that we get that out there. I mean, I always, we were talking about this earlier, uh, Maria, but when I think about uh, chronic pain in particular, I think about, when I think about models, I've always said, if you built a model similar to what we saw with heart disease, and I'm old enough that I remember what it was like before we had ACLS and all these other types of programs where we were sort of uh, always providing sort of core knowledge or core uh, skills uh, at the community level. And if you if you develop something very similar to that and it just sort of percolates up in terms of more the more complex the patient is, obviously, the more special the needs are. But you need to build that capacity within communities. And so all this this is such a, an important discussion. So I'm going to switch it for a bit. I didn't know if you had anything else to offer, um, Fiona. No, I okay. think uh, something that you've just said is really important, which is, um, you know, given that one in five Canadians suffers with chronic pain, they are never all going to be seen in a specialist tertiary interprofessional chronic pain clinic. Mm. So to have kind of stepped care beginning with uh, pain self-management is absolutely critical, more cost-effective and uh, uh, perhaps will um, uh, even prevent transition from acute to chronic pain. So I I really uh, applaud what uh, Maria and PainBC have developed and uh, in many ways feel that it could be replicated uh, across the country. But of course, these things take funding. So anyway, I will stop there. And manpower as well. (laughs) So we're trying to do some uh, mentoring with some of our programs. We had a very robust pain self-management program in the province, but of course, then funding stops and uh, people leave mm-hmm. and go. And then so so you're trying to, to mentor these uh, programs back up because they are so important to the to the communities. So we're going to stop there. And when we come back next week, we're going to talk with Maria and Fiona about opiate analgesics and cannabinoids. Lots of discussion in this area. It's a very hot topic. Unfortunately, we've seen Patients unnecessarily cut off their opiate analgesics, but we've also seen situations where there is unrecognized complications associated with the opiates themselves, including opiate-induced toxicity or opiate-induced pain, as well as an opiate use disorder. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and what the pain task force role may be uh, in moving forward. So we're going to stop there. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.